It's been a great privilege to join Father McDonald in your parish over the last 40 hours to spend this time, especially dedicated to drawing close to our Lord in the Eucharist. A beautiful thing to, to do in this final time leading up to the celebration of Christmas, where we recognize that our Lord chose to enter this world by, by taking on our very flesh and then becoming our very food. That's how close Jesus wants to draw toward us. So over the last 40 hours, we have answered his great act of love in desiring to draw near us, that we have decided to draw near him, especially in these special 40 hours of devotion. Over the, the last 40 hours then, uh, some of you have been, I recognize with us, uh, all, all three talks throughout the time. Uh, for those that have not been able to be here the entire time, I've, I've recorded the talks that I've given and uh, you can find both the previous two and eventually this one on my website, seanthebaptist.org. That's S-H-A-W-N, thebaptist.org. Uh, John the Baptist is my uh, primary patron. Sean is the Irish version of John. And uh, so my patron saint is John the Baptist, which is nice during Advent, because if you haven't noticed, John the Baptist is, well, he's a bit of the star of Advent. I love it. John the Baptist is doing all kinds of great things throughout Advent, and uh, so I, I certainly enjoy that. As we get closer now to Christmas, we'll see that things shift a little bit from John the Baptist to focus, as we will do today, on Mary and Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus as he came to this earth. Uh, a few liturgical notes then on today's celebration. It is Wednesday in the third week of Advent. Now, in the traditional calendar prior to the Second Vatican Council, this day was specifically uh, given its own proper mass and, and given under the title of Ember Wednesday. In fact, this would be Ember Week in Advent because there's not only Ember Wednesday, but Ember Friday and Ember Saturday. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is an Ember Day? Well, as I said, they existed properly in the, the calendar before Vatican II, but even in the, the Novus Ordo, you say, after Vatican II, there is still instructions that the Ember Days could and should even be observed. Uh, the, the word itself, Ember, which you can kind of recognize a little bit in uh, some of the names of our months, Sept Ember, Nov-ember, December, the 7th, the 9th, the 10th, ember. Word imbrindog in the old English means the, the days of cycling, the, the secular days. And the, the cycle that's particularly referred to here is the, the cycle of the seasons. These days are probably as ancient as maybe the early 3rd century, Pope Callistus seems to have created the first three cycle or ember days. And they're held at the four times of the year at the various changing of the seasons to give thanks to God and particularly to give thanks for the various harvests at the, the time. And so, you know, in uh, the days after Pentecost to give thanks for the, the wheat harvest and in September to give thanks for the, the, the grape harvest 
And then here in December, to give thanks for the olive harvest. Notice that these uh, three different things are exactly the, the three fruits of the earth that we need to celebrate the sacraments. And so it was a deliberate time to stop and give thanks to God for these, these gifts of wheat and grapes, without which we wouldn't have the Eucharist and the olive, without which we wouldn't have confirmation or the anointing of the sick and the anointings at baptism and ordinations. And it's good to stop and give thanks to recognize where things come from. I think as I began these talks, you remember I, I talked about how my, my sacred sign that I received to inspire this mission was a, an Amazon truck uh, delivering things right across the street. Uh, we, we can get things pretty easily today. If you wanna know where do things come from, I suppose today's answer is, well, they, they come from Amazon, right? <laughs> they come from the internet. Anything you want, I could pull out my phone right now and, and get it delivered pretty quickly. That's where things come from. I saw a little thing on the, the internet. Someone was complaining, uh, one of those people who um, don't like killing animals. Uh, they were complaining, why do people have to kill cows for dinner? Why can't they just go to the grocery store and buy steak like normal people? Yeah, I, I think we, we often lose sight of where do things come from? Where does, our, where does our food come from? Where does steak come from? Stop, think. Uh, food, where does it come from? <laughs> you know, it's not just at the grocery store. Thank, uh, thank not only God today on this Ember Wednesday, but we, we thank farmers. Where do things come from? Where do the gifts of God come from? Well, as... Uh, we began today's Mass. One of the uh, traditions on Ember Wednesday especially is uh, to celebrate a Mass in honor of Mary, the Virgin Mother of God. Uh, and that tradition then uh, took on the, the form of celebrating uh, a Mass very early in the morning on the Ember days and uh, beginning then all in candlelight. And so uh, some of you might see images on the, the internet today and in the following days of so-called rorate masses. Comes from the, the very first line of the mass, the introit, rorate celi de super et nubes pluant justum. Let the heavens drop down dew, let them rain forth, and let the clouds uh, give forth the just one. That's the, the first line of the mass. So these masses on these Ember days are often known as Rorate Masses, but they have their focus primarily then on the Virgin Mary. And so as we consider today, where do things come from? Where do the gift of God come from? Well, today we're going to end our parish mission in 40 hours by focusing on where did the Christ child come from? Well, we know, of course, he, he came from heaven, and so we we pray today that indeed that the clouds would open up and rain down the just one. But specifically, when Jesus chose to come to this earth, he could have come in any possible way. And indeed, as, as we've, we've talked over these last two days, perhaps if there's a, a theme to focus on, it's to focus on who recognized the Messiah, the Lord at his coming, and who missed it. 
We know from looking at our, our manger scenes that we've been gradually adding over the course of these last two days little figures to our manger scene. And we, we began on the first night by adding the ox and the ass, finding that uh, prophecy of Isaiah that God's chosen people, Israel, many missed the Lord at his coming. But even an ox and an ass is smart enough not to miss out and know who feeds them. So we, we started on the first night by wanting to at least be as smart as an ox and an ass to recognize the Lord at his coming. We do not want to be those who miss out on the Lord. Last night, we, we added the, the figures of the shepherds, the magi, unlikely characters to be the ones not to miss the Lord, shepherds, magi, not even Jews, living in a far-off area. And yet, shepherds, magi, they recognized the Lord at his coming, while all those in Jerusalem, in King Herod's court, missed it. Again, as we look at our mangers, we see gathered around the Christ child those who were prepared, those who knew the scriptures, those who could read the signs and the stars even, those privileged to receive the message of the angels. They got it when so many others missed it. In the course of this 40 hours, we've been focusing on the fact that indeed the, the Lord is right here on our altars at every mass, in our tabernacles, in our churches. We could see in the Eucharist then perhaps the reality of the little Christ child in our nativity manger scenes. And yet how many people today miss it? How many Catholics even miss the reality of the gift of the Eucharist and stay away from Sunday Mass, finding better things to do with their Sunday? How many people drive by this church over and over on Leavenworth Road and are completely unaware of the great gift that is contained inside this church? You are here today because, well, you're at least not as dumb as an ox or an ass. You've got that figured out. You are lowly enough as the shepherds to say that, no, this time in this church is, is worth my time today. I will go in haste and joy even to encounter the Christ child. You are smart enough to search the scriptures, the signs, and make whatever journey is necessary to be like the magi who bring their greatest gifts before Jesus. You are here today because you are amongst the chosen few who get it. You have not missed the Lord at his first coming. But we also want to make sure that we are not amongst those who might miss the Lord at his second coming. And so today we complete our Christmas nativity scenes by looking at the beautiful figures of Mary and Joseph. When Jesus chose to come the first time, he chose to come not as a conquering hero, not as the military Messiah that so many people were looking for. Many people missed the Lord precisely because they thought he would come in some ostentatious, flashy show. He would be a military conqueror. He would overthrow the Romans. He would bring political victory. That's not how Jesus chose to come. And if we are to be ready for his second coming, well then, Let's look at the image of Mary and Joseph. 
These two were, were privileged to receive a vision, an encounter with an angel in the case of Mary, a revelation in a dream on the part of St. Joseph. God revealed his plan to them, but to some extent they were both ready. Joseph, we're told, was a just man. He was living righteously before God. And whenever we hear that word, when it refers to righteousness in the scriptures, justice, we know that Joseph knew the scriptures. He was following the law. He was living his life in accord with the will of God. And so he was ready when the angel appeared to him in a dream and told him of God's plan to enter this world as a little baby conceived in the womb of his virginal betrothed, Mary. It seemed almost unbelievable. And, and perhaps to someone of lesser stature, uh, it would have been unbelievable. Who could believe that this woman I'm betrothed to, who is to be my wife, is now pregnant? It's definitely not my child. And she tells me that she is conceived of the Holy Spirit, and it is God, as we said last night, Mashiach, the Messiah, and Adonai, God himself, who is within the womb of my wife. Who could believe this? But Joseph does, with a little help from an angel in a dream. How amazing it is that St. Joseph is able to accept and believe this. But we see that his heart was prepared his whole life for this moment. Sometimes I think we overlook the incredible sacrificial love of Joseph for Mary and his trust in God. Because when Joseph is confronted with the truth, he believes, he trusts that indeed it is as Mary has said, as the angel has said to him, God has been conceived and entered the world in the womb of his wife. But Joseph has a very important decision then. If he fails to do as the, the law would dictate, and we know he's a just man, so Joseph follows the law, Joseph is commanded in the law that if his wife has been unfaithful, and notice that the, the term used here is wife, even though they're betrothed, it's not like a, a normal engagement. Mary and Joseph are betrothed in the, the ancient Jewish marital sense in that they are properly called man and wife from the time of the betrothal. And then the marriage will be completed a year later when the husband would take the wife into his home. But that betrothal period in, in between that was a time in which the couple would be called man and wife, uh, but they would not live together. Part of the, the point was to prove that they are able to live chastely, that they are able to prepare a proper home in the case of the man, and that, that they were not pregnant, that this was a decision made in freedom. So the fact that Mary is pregnant during this betrothal period means, well, at least to most people, it, it can only mean one of two things. Either Mary has been unfaithful, and has committed adultery, which it would, in fact, in the Jewish law, be adultery for someone who is betrothed to have relations with someone who is not her betrothed. 
So that is one option. Mary has committed adultery. And if so, then Joseph is commanded under the law to denounce her and subject her to the law, which could include up to being put to death, to be stoned. Or if Joseph fails to do that, he is implicitly admitting the other possibility, that in fact the child is Joseph's child. Mary has not committed adultery, but rather Joseph was unable to control himself. He was not chaste. He was not just. He perhaps took advantage of his betrothed in the time when they were supposed to prove that they can live chastely. Joseph could not do it. Those are the apparent two options. Unbeknownst to everyone else is, of course, the third option, which proves to be true, that indeed neither Mary was unfaithful nor was Joseph unchaste, but indeed the greatest miracle ever has occurred, and Mary is pregnant with the Savior of the world, with God. But that third option is, of course, only known to us who can read the scriptures years later. Mary knew, Joseph knew, but to everyone else, by not condemning Mary publicly, Joseph is, in fact, seemingly to admit the second possibility that it is, in fact, through his own sin that Mary is now pregnant. Think of the incredible love, then, that Joseph has for Mary and reverence for God. He is not willing to expose her to shame, the scripture says, meaning the only other option is that he exposes himself to shame. He's essentially saying, this was my fault, my mistake. I am not a just man. But of course, for us, we know that that is exactly the opposite because the scriptures tell us plainly, Joseph was a just man. And so we are privileged to know the secret that Mary and Joseph knew that this child will be called holy for he shall be the son of God. So as we move on to finish by contemplating the Virgin Mary, let's, especially as we finish this year of St. Joseph, be very grateful for the man God chose to be the foster father, as it were, of Jesus, the incredible St. Joseph, who shows us manly fortitude, love, conviction, willing to do what is best for his wife and God's plan, even if it brought shame and suffering upon himself. How much we need husbands like this today who are willing to lay down their lives, their own fortunes, honor, desires, to lay it down for their wives. We pray that St. Joseph, as we contemplate him in our Christmas manger scene, would remind us of what it means to be a true husband and father. Now, as we look at this final figure, Mary, who we honor today in our Rorate Mass, she too, like Joseph, knew the scriptures, was prepared in her heart, in fact, we know that, that God did an extra special miracle in Mary and that he prepared her with the singular privilege to be free from all original sin from the first moment of her conception. What an incredible gift. And after all, if you could prepare your own mother as Jesus was able to do, 
this singular privilege. If you could prepare your own mother, wouldn't you make her perfect? And that's exactly what Jesus did in preparing Mary to be his mother. There's a, there's a beautiful line in the, the hymn from uh, the divine office, the bereavery, uh, that's sung in the, the common of, of virgins. It, it actually begins, uh, virginis proles opifexque matris. So virginis proles, literally the, the offspring of a virgin, as if that's not amazing enough, let that sink in offspring, son of a virgin, virginis prolis. But then the second part, opifexque matris, and maker of your mother. Two incredible miracles in that, just the first verse of an ancient Latin hymn, virginis prolis, opifexque matris, son of a virgin and maker of your mother. Jesus got to make his mother and he made her perfect. And yet, in that perfection, she had the same free will that every human being has. She, remembering that Eve in the garden was also without original sin, when confronted with the temptation to doubt God, Eve famously chose the lesser good, the apparently desirous fruit, the forbidden fruit. And because of Eve's use of freedom to doubt God, all of creation was cursed from the garden. Mary now, like Eve, is confronted with potentially the temptation to doubt God. Mary, the new Eve, gets it exactly right where the first Eve got it wrong. The new Eve, Mary, chooses to trust God. She questions how this is going to come about, but she doesn't doubt that it will come about. Rather, she questions, I am to be the mother of God, and yet I know I have pledged my virginity forever to God. How can I be a mother and a virgin? That's her question. She doesn't doubt for a minute that it will be. She knows it will be, but how? How will this happen to me? And Gabriel gives her that beautiful message. Behold, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary allowed herself to be overshadowed by the power of God, the same word that is used for God's dwelling in the temple in Jerusalem to overshadow the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. This was the sign of God's presence in the temple. Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant who is overshadowed by the power of God. And just as the old Ark of the Covenant contains symbolic presence of God, Mary contains God himself in her womb. In response to the angel, Mary ultimately says, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Amazing to, to think that she who has just been announced to be the mother of God, who all generations are to call blessed, her response is, I am just a lowly handmaid. I'm a, a servant of the Lord. I'm nobody. 
Gosh, if the, if the shepherds show us humility and the kings to throw down their crowns and journey to Bethlehem to see the king of kings, here in the Virgin Mary, we have the witness par excellence of humility. She is the greatest woman, the greatest human being ever to live. She's just had God's own angel come down from heaven to be in her presence and bow to her. And she sees herself merely as the servant, the handmaid, the slave even of the Lord. And then she says the words by which all of creation receives salvation, fiat mihi, secundum verbum tuum. May it be fiat, may it be unto me according to your word. Where the first Eve said, I don't trust God, not God's will, my will. I choose to trust the serpent. I choose to doubt God and believe a lie. Mary simply says, let it be. If this is the will of God, I trust God. Let it be. That word fiat, we go all the way back to the beginning of creation again. It's the same word in the, the Latin scriptures by which God creates the world in the beginning. Fiat lux, let there be light. And there is. When we give that fiat, let it be, it's powerful. God creates the world out of that word fiat. Let it be, and it is. And in Mary, that same word is used to recreate the world. Fiat mihi, let it be unto me, as the angel has said, and it is. The savior of the world, the one to remake the world, to cancel out the debt of sin that has hung over all creation since the garden. Through Mary's fiat, the new creation comes to be hidden silently in what the, the fathers of the church would describe as the enclosed garden of the womb of the Virgin Mary. Her womb has become the new paradise, the new Eden. How privileged we are to know that through her, yes, she becomes truly, as the first Eve was named, the mother of all the living. Adam named his wife Eve, that, that word, Heva, in Hebrew means mother of all the living. But sadly, through the first Eve's choice, death came to all the world. But because of this unique connection that through, through one couple, Adam and Eve, it seems almost unjust, but sin could infect then the entire organism of humanity. But because of that connectedness amongst all of us, by that same way that Satan got in and was able to curse all of humanity through just the, the sin of the original couple, in the same way, Jesus is able to enter and through that same force, save all of creation. Just as in Adam, all sinned, St. Paul tells us, so in Jesus, all have been made righteous and clean. And all of this because Mary said yes. As we 
honor her as the last and greatest figure in the little Advent scene around the manger. Let us be grateful today for Mary having been well prepared. We talk about who missed it and who got it when the Savior came. Mary, above all, was ready. She got it. She didn't miss it. And because of that, we are all able to be here today, gathered around the, the final piece of our Advent manger scenes, the little baby Jesus lying in the manger. On Christmas night, he goes from being inside the Ark of the Covenant, Mary, hidden in her womb, to lying in a manger, which, as we said the other night, it's a food trough. It's the place where the animals go to get their food, a manger. That's, that's what it is. How blessed are we that over these last 40 days, we have been able to recognize our master and our master's manger, the way Isaiah prophesied of the ox and the ass. We've been able to hear the scriptures and through them the message of the angels calling, as they did to the shepherds, go to Bethlehem see the baby lying in the manger. We've been able to read the signs the way the Magi did and be willing to drop everything of our idea for our life and go on a, a journey as the Magi did to bring our treasures and lay down our crowns before Jesus. Today, we see in Joseph, the just one, the call to be righteous in God's sight to walk always according to the scriptures and the law of God so that when God reveals his plan more fully to us, we can say yes and that we can protect the beautiful gift of life that God chooses to bring about through conception inside the beautiful gift of woman as mother. And finally, we see in the Virgin Mary the call to be completely docile and open to the will of God in our life. God will not impose himself on us. He will propose. Even the most important proposal in the history of the world, his plan for all eternity was to come through the womb of the Virgin Mary, and yet he allowed her to decide, will it be or will it not? Thanks be to God and the Blessed Virgin Mary that she said, fiat, let it be, and it was. And because of that, we have today not the little baby lying in the manger, but as we've had throughout these 40 hours, the Eucharist lying in the, the place where the manger should be in our nativity scenes. As you erect your nativity scenes then as Christmas draws near, I hope that you'll remember these, these blessed days of the 40 hours, that you will reflect on the ox, the ass, the shepherds, the kings, the, the star, the angel, Joseph, Mary. And then that you will be able to be amongst the blessed few, and it does seem to be few, who understand the gift of the Eucharist. That is the presence of Jesus now. No longer a baby in Bethlehem. No longer the great teacher who walked the earth with his apostles. But rather, 
permanently with us in the gift of the most holy sacrament of the altar. As we pray today for the heavens to open up and rain down the just one, the earth to give forth a savior, that prophecy has been fulfilled. And it lies now, not in a manger, but on our altars. May we see in the Christmas manger scene, today its fulfillment in the Eucharist, which lies not in straw, but on the altar, to which we now go with hearts full of gratitude that indeed Emmanuel, God is with us. He is with us in the Eucharist.